Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children and youth through adoption, foster, and kinship care. Hosted by an adoptive mom with over 22 years of kinship and adoptive parenting experience, she's on this journey with you. Please welcome Sandra Flack. Pure and lasting religion in the sight of God our Father means that we must care for orphans and widows in their troubles and refuse to let the world corrupt us. That is James 127, of course, a very meaningful verse for many of us, including our dad guest today. Uh, But before we get to our guest, um, just want to check in and see how you're doing. I always uh, come to this podcast, sit down with the microphone, um, and just um, always have this feeling of gratitude that I get to be with you, even though we're really not physically together. Um, You'll be listening to this at a later time from when I'm actually speaking these words, but uh, you are on my heart. Um, I, I am on this journey with you, this parenting journey, parenting children with trauma histories and prenatal exposure possibly, and just parenting other people's kids, right? And the, um, all of the things that go with that. Um, and I know how difficult it can be. And I am grateful for this community. I see this podcast as a community because you're coming, you're listening, and I pray that you get encouraged and inspired and just feel supported and not alone in your journey. That's also one of the things I love about our support group, um, our Hope for the FASD Journey support group that I co-lead with um, fellow adoptive mom, Natalie Vecchione. Um, We just come together with our our group of parents, mostly moms, um, but they, uh, together, we we meet three Tuesday nights a month um, online. It's virtual, but we're all in the Zoom room together and we get to share, we get to support one another, encourage one another, pray for one another. It is a faith-based group. Um, So we always close each um, meeting in prayer, uh, we also have a private Facebook group that goes along with that and um, where Natalie and I take turns every Saturday. You have what we call Soul Care Saturday where we post a video of a devotional that, that Natalie or I are, are um, bring to you. And again, you know, the feedback we get from the members is just it's it's so encouraging to, to not be alone, to, to be able to sojourn with other parents on this same journey, similar journeys. Um, and I just value this community. So I thank you for being here today. Uh, and again, my prayer always is to um, lead you through um, you know, this time of listening so that you feel encouraged and supported on your journey. So um, I'm super excited because um, throughout the month of June, all of our episodes focus on our adoptive and foster dads. We don't always get to hear from the dads. They can be the silent type, right? Um, But uh, the guys that we do get on the podcast do share their story. Um, They are all working also in this space of um, adoption and foster care, which for I think each one of the dads that we have, uh, or all four of the dads that we have interviewed um, this month, because uh, they're still they're still um, next week left to go. We have, or maybe this is the last one. Is this the last one? I think this is the fourth one. Um, I don't have the calendar in front of me, but yes, this I'm recording today the the episode that will be the last one. So our all of our dads is what I'm trying to say started off really not planning to adopt or foster, did adopt or foster, or both, and then the Lord led them into careers, jobs, um, where adoption and foster care is part of what they do. I find that to be so um, encouraging and inspiring. Not that it happens with every dad, you know, hey, my husband's still working construction, um, but is very hands-on and involved with, um, and always has been with, with our children that we brought in our home through adoption and 
Um, our journey is far from over because we are youngest to our teenagers, as many of you know, who just really um, need lots of support because they um, were prenatally exposed to alcohol. Um, so our youngest has an intellectual disability because of that. Um, so we are still, you know, 30, goodness, 30 something years <laughs> of parenting in um, and still on this journey and really probably in the hardest season of our parenting um, journey. So again, I'm here with you, excited to hear from the dads this month and their unique perspective that they bring. So um, we're going to get to the dads, but first let's make sure um, that you check out these important announcements. Natalie Vecchione of the FASD Hope Podcast and Sandra Flack of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey Podcast would like to invite you to join their Hope for the FASD Journey, a virtual support community for parents and care givers raising individuals with an FASD, diagnosed or not. This faith-based community includes an online bi-monthly support group, a monthly VIP conversation, and a private Facebook group which includes a video devotional from Natalie and Sandra every Saturday. To register, visit justicefororphansny.org forward slash training forward slash FASD. And I've got some online workshops coming up. Um, so mark your calendar if you are interested. If you feel like you really do need to learn a little bit more about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, I have a free lunch and learn, I call it. It's an introduction to FASD workshop. I offer one of these workshops every month for free. Uh, it's online. We do it through Zoom. The next one is um, Wednesday. July 12th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, and this is also great if you are wanting to have your spouse or your parents or your adult children or babysitter or school teacher or someone in your child's life, if you believe they need to understand FASD a little bit better, um, this is a great way to bring them into the conversation and bring some awareness. Um, it's free. It's one hour um, and, and it's very popular. So there's that one. And also coming up in July, if you want to go a little bit deeper into FASD on Thursday, July 20th, I am leading a three hour deep dive into FASD using the FACETS neurobehavioral model. It's a brain-based approach. We focus on understanding the impact that alcohol has on a developing baby's brain, um, as well as what are the symptoms of FASD um, and taking into consideration how, how the individual's brain works, what symptoms that they present with, because this is a spectrum, so not everybody presents with all of the same symptoms. Um, and we, we start looking at how we can better accommodate and support um, based on all of the above. So super important training. That is again Thursday, July 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, you do not have to take the lunch and learn. That's not a prerequisite because we're going to cover all of the things that we cover in the lunch and learn. We're also going to cover in the three hour, but go deeper. We do offer certificates of completion for all of our workshops. So if you need to have training, you know, credit hours towards your foster parent licensing and all of that, we do provide you with a certificate of completion. And now also we do offer CEUs to social workers licensed in New York State. So to register for any of these online workshops or to check out the available workshops that aren't you know, on the schedule yet, or maybe you're looking for one, I have been actually traveling um, and, and getting invitations to travel to, to pr do presentations in person now. Um, I do that as well. So if you have a support group or you have an agency or an organization or you know, and want me to come and present to a group, I do that. So you can reach out to me um, to schedule something like that. Or if you just really want a one-on-one, -on -one, maybe you you want a special, you, the, the, the times that we're not offering don't jive with your schedule and you really want maybe something more personal, more one-on-one, -on -one, more like a coaching through the FASD, um, I do that as well. So to, to register for the trainings that are coming up, 
you would go to our website, justicefororphansny.org, and then click the training tab at the top of the page to register. You have to do that even for the free lunch and learn because that's how you get the Zoom link. Um, But if you're interested in just finding out more, reaching out to me, you can do that on our website as well. Again, that is justicefororphansny.org. And there is a link in the show notes um, to this episode so that you can easily find it and get there. Um, And if you're new to this podcast, please, please subscribe to the podcast, follow it, whatever platform you're, you listen to this on, make sure you follow or subscribe. So that way it comes to your inbox of podcast episodes every week. This is a weekly podcast. So every Monday we drop a new episode. We don't want you to miss any of them. Um, And these are episodes that are really designed to encourage and equip adoptive foster and kinship caregivers. So share it with your fellow Uh, parents that you believe would um, really benefit from being encouraged and equipped too. So without further ado, let's get to our guest today, Jonathan Grimaldi. John and his wife, Kristen, are foster and adoptive parents living in Buffalo, New York. The Grimaldis currently have three foster children in their care, ages five, four, and five months. So they're just a little bit busy these days as well as their adoptive daughter, who is turning six later this summer. Some of the children they have fostered were diagnosed with an FASD, including their adoptive daughter. John is a former pastor who recently took the role of executive director for Every Child, a kinship foster and adoption support community empowering churches in the eight counties of Western New York to reach every child in crisis with hope of the gospel. Um, If you remember my interview uh, earlier this month with Steve Poissant of Care Portal, Jonathan stepped into Steve's role um, at Every Child as executive director. So I'm so excited about all of the amazing work and support they're doing um, on behalf of children and families in crisis out there in the western part of the state. Um, And I can't wait for you to get to know John and hear more of his story. So please welcome Jonathan Grimaldi. Hi, Jonathan. Hey, Sandra. I am so excited to have you on the show today. So thank you for saying yes uh, when I asked you to be on. Can't wait for our guests to get to know you because you are a fellow, a fellow adoptive and foster parent in New York State. So I don't always get to interview New Yorkers. So you're the second one this month. So that's super exciting. Um, So thank you for being on. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And you know, just sharing a little bit from from our story, a little bit from the work that I do. And I'm just really grateful for your podcast and the the different uh, speakers that you bring in, but also the wealth of knowledge that you are sharing from your journey, your expertise. Uh, I just I really find this podcast as a foster and adoptive parent uh, tremendously helpful. So excited to be on and share a little bit. And hopefully your listen, listeners will find some of this helpful. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for your kind words. So yeah, I would love for our listeners to get to hear your story. So let's start at the beginning of your adoption and foster journey. What led you and your wife, Kristen, to become foster parents? Yeah, absolutely. So um, what really led us, there's a lot of different reasons why people get into foster care, a lot of great reasons. And for us, it really was that opportunity to minister to children's and families who are in the midst of crisis and to share the love uh, um, and compassion of Christ with them. You know, one of our favorite verses is James 127. It's, you know, a, a popular verse in kind of the orphan world, but that idea of pure and undefiled or genuine, depending on which translation of the Bible you're reading. Uh, religion in the sight of God uh, means to to meet or to care for orphans and widows uh, in their distress. Uh, and that, you know, f- for for Kristen and I uh, has taken on different shapes over the last couple of years, but our faith is really what drives us to be active. I mean, God's the one who's in this verse saying, hey, this is what I see as pure religion. And so for my wife, she grew up um, fostering in her family. Her mom and dad had made uh, the decision to take in foster children when she was, while she was growing up. Uh, they actually fostered all the time through when my wife was even in college. And so for her, it really was a way for her family uh, to meaningfully serve in the community. Uh, on the other hand, I had no exposure to the foster care system, although I did have uh, exposure to adoptions through um, the churches that I grew up in. 
Um, you know, more specifically back in the late nineties, my, my family was involved with, you know, just caring for different families that had done international adoptions. We also were involved with caring for families who were refugees coming into Western New York and, and being able to get settled and get integrated into the community. And then later on, um, you know, for me and my experience being a, a pastor within the local church in a previous life, and even uh, up until last year, before I made the jump over to uh, serving as executive director for every child. I was a program director for a charity that was based uh, here in Buffalo, but was doing work in Sierra Leone, West Africa, caring for some of the most vulnerable children in our world, uh, providing clean water, health care, education. And uh, really, it's just a passion that God has grown within me to really care for these kids. And so when we were uh, getting married, um, you know, when we were talking dating and all that, talking about what we wanted our family to look like, we knew that foster care was going to be a ministerial piece to this, that we wanted to be involved. And for me, it was really that opportunity to to really make an impact right here within the community, uh, to really make a difference for families, for biological parents, and, and for these kids uh, to serve them. Wow, I love that. So primed and ready to adopt and foster right, right as you were getting married. Um, so I know there's an interesting story behind your first foster placement that has to do with your wife's parents being foster parents. So tell us about that. Yeah. So we got, uh, we were going through the process of getting certified to become foster parents and my in-laws who I mentioned previously, um, they had taken in a young boy when he was, uh, you know, just you know, like a year old, a little over a year old. And they had him for about two years and he had kind of gone back, back and forth with his mom. Uh, but my father-in-law and mother-in-law, they stayed connected to this boy and to the mother. Uh, and she eventually did get what she needed to do done. She she got back up on her feet, uh, left the drug dealer boyfriend, got her apartment, got her life together, got a job. Uh, but but my in-laws maintained that relationship with this young boy. And, and really what happened was my father-in-law grew into almost like a godfather for this child. His name is Sam. And so as Sam was growing up, my father-in-law would um, pick him up to take him fishing, uh, take him to hockey games. They grew up uh, out in Elmira, so Horseheads area. Uh, of kind of central New York, Finger Lakes region. And so all throughout this boy's childhood, uh, my father-in-law really was there for him in different ways. And um, about the same time, uh, about five years ago, when Kristen and I were getting certified, you know, Sam had grown up, but he was coming out here to Buffalo. Uh, my in-laws moved out here when, after we had gotten married, my wife and I. And um, they were coming out and and they paid for him and his mom to come out and watch a Sabres game and spend the night. And so as they're sitting at this this Buffalo Sabres game, uh, Sam's mom um, started opening up to my father-in-law saying, you know what, I've, Sam's got a sister and she's already lost two children into foster care and she's got a third one. And that third girl um, is in a really vulnerable spot right now. She's actually living with an aunt because her mom can't hold it together. She's got drug addictions, mental health problems, all the things. And uh, so she reached out to Matt and said, I don't want to see another one of my grandkids lost into the foster care system. I was in foster care. My kids are in foster care. I hate seeing my grandkids in foster care. Can you help? And so it just so happens that, you know, we were getting certified at the time. And so for Kristen and I, our first foster placement connection didn't come from a, a CPS caseworker or a home finder. It actually came through a personal connection. And so what wound up happening is we wound up uh, fostering Sophia for uh, about two and a half years. And so we'd go back and forth to Elmira for visitations and all that. But after two and a half years and kind of a litany of different court hearings and things going on with mom and dad, we we're actually able to adopt Sophia. And so, which is our daughter's name. And she's uh, she's with us now and she's going to be turning six here. And that really is just a beautiful story of kind of the system working as it, as it should, uh, where there is a connection outside of DSS and CPS that it becomes a resource for the family. Um, and, you know, in this case, you know, for us, we're able to maintain a family relationship for our daughter where she's got aunts and grandmothers and cousins who are still able to be involved in her life, which we're really, really grateful for, especially, you know, as she grows up and gets older, as you, I know you got teenagers, mm -hmm. so they start asking those questions. Uh, it's going to be great to have that family tie back uh, for her. Wow, what an incredible story. And the hope here is too that th this will break, your adoption of Sophia will break that that cycle of foster care, right? Uh, in her, her family and her family cycle of just repeating and, and 
continuing that. So um, that is the hope here. And I'm sure being placed in your family um, in a Christian home will will be that game changer for her. Um, love to hear that. So you did you go on to foster more children, I assume, since since taking Sophia in? Yeah, yeah. So we've we've been fostering now for a little over five years. And we've had over a dozen children come in and out of our care. Um, you know, some, you know, some as short as just uh, last month, we had an emergency placement, a little girl who was with us for 48 hours until some extended family actually down in Texas uh, could be located. And then we've had other children who've come and who stayed longer. Uh, we had young, uh, one young boy, we'll call him Joe. Uh, he was with us for two and a half years and he actually went home earlier this year and he's now living with his bio father. Uh, up in Toronto. So we've had a number of kids come in and out of our care over the years, different ages, different group sizes. Uh, we currently right now in our home have um, a, a sibling group of three that is five, four and five months. So they are uh, great. They are very interesting group of siblings, also unique, um, but all, you know, just really great uh, opportunity for my wife and I to uh, deploy our different parenting skills and strategies and really help understand some of the challenges that they face and help them to be able to thrive. And we're already seeing that even then, you know, we've only had these kiddos uh, for less than a week, but we're already seeing some really great growth from each of them. So there's that encouragement as well. But yeah, we've had about a dozen or so uh, in and out in the five years that we've been doing that. And, um, you know, each one of those has been just an opportunity for my wife and I really to, to learn and grow um, as each child is coming from a unique background, uh, has a unique experience with trauma, has unique um, medical things going on, and uh, just grateful to be able to learn and grow in this area and uh, to be able to, you know, see these kids, even in a very short time, thrive when they're put in the right environment and given the right care. And there's just so much hope in that no matter no matter what challenge a kid is facing um there is so much hope for a kid who can be placed uh in the right settings given the right tools given the right uh, methods to be able to get their needs met they can really thrive and make some progress even if it's only for a few days wow i love that that is true just that put them in the right environment right and they can thrive um you mentioned one of the, the kiddos that you took in you had for two and a half years and then he went back with a parent. Um, and we hear so often from folks who are considering foster care or they won't even consider it because they always say, I would get attached and then I would have to give them back and I wouldn't be able to. Um, and that had to be excruciatingly hard. Two and a half years you invested into this little guy. H how was that for you? Tell us, describe that experience. So it was extremely painful and extremely hard. Uh, but also extremely beautiful as well. And I think that's the thing that comes with foster care is you can have kind of extreme tragedy and extreme beauty all and hold them in the same hands. And so, yeah, Joe, we we met Joe in actually an emergency in a children's hospital room in his emergency room. Uh, he was 18 months and he had crawled out of a third story window and broke his foot and pelvis. And so there was a, a big history of neglect. He was very delayed in a lot of areas and so we spent two and a half years fighting for him, uh, helping to make sure that he could get the right evaluations and acquire proper diagnoses, uh, really helping him to get connected with the right service providers, the right doctors, helping his uh, daycare uh, teachers and just different people who are in his life, our family, um, different people learn uh, really how to help love and care for him in a way that made sense with the different needs that he had. Um, and, and we did that, like I said, for two and a half years. And towards the end of that time, um, bio mom, uh, she had a number of different mental health diagnoses that deemed her incapable to be a parent. And so we were tracking towards mom's rights being terminated. And at that point, we didn't have any biological dad in the picture. Uh, and unfortunately, mom somehow got reconnected up with dad and and uh, was there was a, um, a child support battle that was going on. But dad was up in Canada. And so everything was really complex. Um, you know, we were out here in Buffalo, Niagara County specifically, which is where um, Kristen and I live. And there really wasn't any um, handbook on how to do kind of the international foster care and <laughs> child custodies. And so there's a lot of gray space in that. Uh, but we did meet dad, um, you know, probably about four to five months before Josiah left. 
uh, just through Zooms because that's that's all he was required to do at that time. And early on, um, you know, he didn't really want to um, pull Josiah out of our home. Uh, he didn't really want to, um, you know, engage in anything outside of just, you know, supporting him and letting him know that, that hey, I'm, I'm here and I'm your dad and I'd love to have a relationship with you at some point down the road. And so what wound up happening is um, something changed for him where he made a decision that he wanted to pursue custody. And, and unfortunately, which is great, that's an awesome thing. That's a goal of foster care. But unfortunately for us on our end, we had a caseworker changeover, which is so common, especially nowadays post-COVID. You know, in our county, there's 65% turnover in caseworkers. Um, and so there was a caseworker changeover, paperwork changeover. So we actually did not know that uh, the the permanency plan changed to return to biofather. And so about a week before a permanency hearing that we were going in expecting for mom to be getting her rights terminated, we were actually reading through the court packet and the court packet said, change permanency plan to go to dad. And so we reached out immediately to the new caseworker who hadn't even really updated herself on the file yet and was like, yep, that's what's happening. That's what my notes say. And so we had pretty much less than five days notice to really try to work out a plan with dad for what this was going to look like in, in regards to a transition and prepare Josiah and our family. And so that was really, really, really hard. My wife is actually out of town at a at a conference down in Pennsylvania for foster moms. So God's timing there. So she could be surrounded by people uh, processing this huge change for us, surrounded by other foster moms and allow me the flexibility to <laughs> do the dad thing, get the boxes around, get the tape out, start packing stuff up. And so, you know, that next week we went to court and, um, you know, met dad for the very first time that day. And after Cordy followed us back to our home, we packed up his sedan with all of the stuff that our little guy had and uh, and wished him well and said goodbye. And so looking back, it was so hard because it was so quick. And, mm. you know, you never you never want to have to, uh, you know, change and pivot that quick. But but now I actually see the grace that was in that. You know, one of the things that we always say, and any parent says this, right, that you, you parent with the end in mind. And for, you know, a, a typical bio family, maybe that end is high school graduation or college graduation, or maybe the day your, your son or daughter gets married and they move out of your home. But for foster parents, the end in mind is really whenever that time comes for your child to leave. And as a foster parent, that may be next year, that may be next month, that may be tomorrow. And when you parent with the end in mind, knowing that tomorrow may always be your last, it really helps you to parent in such a way where you're saying, okay, I can only control so much. I can only do so much. And in this case, I couldn't sit back and regret that, you know, our son who we had had for two and a half years was going to be leaving quicker than we should have, because really we wouldn't have done anything different. We, we would have tried to prepare him for that departure. But in many ways, the grace in this was that God was bringing back a, a biological father into the life of his biological son. And there was going to need to be a break from the attachment for, with us so that he can attach to his dad. And due to the geography, again, it's kind of a unique situation with his dad being from Toronto. Uh, but he was really had the opportunity here to jump right in to this relationship with a person who I believe did have the right intentions in mind. It's a shame that maybe the communication didn't work out on the system side. Uh, but here this dad was able to step in, uh, take this child in and be part of that restoration of a broken family relationship. And so for us as a family, it was really hard because we had to say goodbye. We didn't necessarily get to do it in our own terms, but it was also graceful because it was, you know, something that is what we were shooting towards. It's something that we were praying for. Uh, it just came on a timetable that we weren't necessarily expecting. And so, like I said, living with the end in mind, it just, it really helps us to take advantage of every day, every opportunity, every challenge, and see it as something that it's like, all right, this is a growth opportunity. This is a love and compassion opportunity, and we may not get tomorrow. And so because we parented that way, saying goodbye, just, I want to say it was easier uh, but we certainly are now on this side of it, able to recover and continue to move on and go right back into the trenches of foster care, knowing that as much as Josiah grew, 
we also grew and, and having him in our home, uh, we were able to grow as parents and be prepared for the next children and the next kid and the next, you know, situation of birth parent that was coming into, into our lives. Wow. So how old was Josiah when he returned to dad? So he was four years old when he returned to dad. Wow. And have you had any contact? Do you know how he's doing? We unfortunately have not. There was some initial stuff where we were able to connect him with um, service providers and different medical things that just due to the processes that were going to be going on with how delayed they were internationally, he wasn't able to get access to things. So we helped him out there. But yeah, unfortunately, whether it's he changed his number or just, you know, chooses not to respond, we we haven't reached out too much. You know, I just reached out uh, over the weekend for Father's Day to wish him a happy Father's Day. But yeah, there's really not not any connection coming back. And so it's it's hard in some degree, but also in another degree, that's where we're living by faith and trusting that, you know, even if something else does happen, that even if his biological father does fail him, uh, he's got a heavenly father who has got him. And it's the same heavenly father that brought him to us in a very critical time of need. And we'll do it again uh, if that need comes comes in the future, which certainly we hope and pray that it doesn't. Wow. So beautifully put, Jonathan. I appreciate that. Um, Typically, I wanted to ask you about this too, because we've talked about trauma, right? So typically adoptive and foster placements, um, children have experienced trauma, um, you know, which impacts behavior, right? So what has been your experience with with, uh, kiddos coming in with the trauma? Yeah, I think, you know, I think the the misconception might be that if you can get a child early enough, you know, they won't really remember. But what we know from brain science is that trauma impacts every single brain, even those that are still in the womb. And so any child that's a part of the foster care system, they have endured some form of trauma, even if it's just a trauma being um, separated from their biological mother. Um, or the trauma that led to that child being in care. All all children in foster care have endured trauma to some form or fashion. And so for us, every kid who's come into our care, we kind of keep that in mind that, you know, whether it's neglect or any form of abuse, that, that really this child, they have been impacted by that and their brain has been impacted by that. You know, our daughter, for example, uh, she endured a lot of trauma, not only as an infant, she was removed from a drug house with cocaine powder on the coffee table next to her back and play and a lot of violent people coming in and out of that home. Um, but she also faced uh, trauma in the form of um, things that happened uh, when she was still, when her mom was still pregnant with her. Um, you know, there was early on, uh, after we had received Sophia and we, she was in our care, we started to notice uh, some trauma-related behaviors, the head banging, some trigger responses, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, one of the things that we noticed with her was that every two-ish weeks, um, she would really have just a short wick. So her intolerance went to zero and she would just, anything would set her off. She'd have tantrums and tailspins. And, you know, as any good parent, you know, equipped with your connected child book, trying to figure all these things out, we're observing, we're working with daycare workers, our parents, everybody trying to write these things down and figure out what is the trigger? What is the trigger? But after many months, we were just left scratching our heads going, what is going on? We can't figure out the triggers. It doesn't seem to be anything sensory. Well, we got connected with the amazing team of doctors at the the Pediatric Trauma Center with um, the University of Rochester. And uh, they were able to look into kind of the medical records of of our daughter and, and her biological mom, things that as foster parents, we didn't have access to. And while they couldn't sp- share specific details, we were able to work together and line up moms and and um, our daughter's kind of hospital visits, even prenatal hospital visits with different police records and domestic violence um, um, situations that were going on at the time. And as we began to line these things up and, you know, we we're getting Sophia some of these evaluations, we were able to see and understand that actually because, you know, Sophia's mom was in a domestic violence situation when Sophia was still in the womb, after Sophia was born, all the way until the point where she was removed from care, that Sophia, actually her brain was impacted traumatically by what she was experiencing. And so just like mom, who was in this domestic violence situation, who every two weeks, mom's body would be uh, pumping extra cortisol through her blood, through her system, kind of the fight or flight is amplified. So it goes with Sophia. 
And so even after Sophia is born, she is now hardwired on where every two or so weeks, her body starts pumping this stuff extra through her system and, and her amygdala is firing like crazy. And so working with you of art was just such a relief to be able to see and understand these things and that, hey, we know we just got to plan ahead that this is just something that maybe she outgrows, maybe she doesn't, but it is it is a brain thing. It's a brain mm. chemistry situation. This is not necessarily an environmental thing. This is not a sensory thing. This is her brain is misfiring. Her body's got extra cortisol pumping through the blood. And so we just need to be able to see and understand how do we meet her when she's in that in those modes. And again, when we got her, she was 18 months old. So it was like, oh my goodness, how do we just keep you safe? And yeah. um, so it's, it, it is crazy to see how much trauma can impact a child, even when they're still in utero. Um, yeah. And then nonetheless, especially those first two years um, coming from the outside environmental forces. Wow. So that makes me want to ask this question about what has been your experience with prenatal exposure to alcohol. So, you know, there was domestic violence. She came out of a, a, a house where there was drugs going on. You know me, I always ask this question about FASD. Um, it's highly prevalent among the population of children in child welfare. So was she prenatally exposed or have you had any experience with FASD with her or any of the children that you've fostered? Yeah. So yes, with her and also with a number of the children that we have fostered in our care. Um, you know, and for her specifically, it was interesting because we didn't have um, kind of the, the parental testimony to alcohol use. But really for her, it was just observing and watching and learning what is this thing called FASD. We had some reason to suspect it because we did have relationships with the family, the aunt, the mom. Uh, who admitted to these things for mom that, you know, we, we saw her drinking uh, while she was pregnant. But, you know, as we were trying to put all this stuff together for her, it really came down to just what did we observe and how does that line up to what um, different resources, different uh, articles, different, you know, doctors were saying. Uh, and the same comes for other kids that we've had in our care. You know, some kids come into our care and they've got the facial features and it's almost like a given. Um, but as you know, and as you you spoke to many times, the facial features are a rarity often, yeah. you know, and furthermore, there's a reason why it's called FASD, um, you know, that it's it's something that is, you know, this idea of it being almost this, this spectrum, right, that not mm -hmm. every kid, some kid may have a partial diagnosis or a full diagnosis, but it's going to impact the brain differently. And then some things may show up uh, early on and then kind of fade away. And some things might show up you know, later on and not be there earlier. So it really is for us just watching and observing each child. And now that we've, you know, specifically had Sophia, who we've been learning about this with, we're able to see some of the primary and secondary characteristics and be able to kind of piece things together as these kids grow up, as these kids are in different environments and say, okay, I think there's something more going on here than maybe just some of the, the common challenges that, a you know, a toddler may face. Wow. So does she have an actual diagnosis? Were you she, able to secure that? Yeah, she does. Yeah. So we went through, and I mentioned earlier, um, the pediatric uh, trauma center at the U of R. We got connected with them um, and we had done some evaluations with them. We actually got connected with them in the middle of COVID. So it was really hard because they wanted to do the initial evaluations over Zoom because they weren't taking any in-person. So um, they they actually, it was great because they sent us a lot of resources and they relied heavily on us to try to decipher some of these things. And so um, a combination of us working with our pediatrician, um, the different daycare workers at that time, um, Sophia is now in kindergarten, but the daycare workers at that time, uh, family members, just different people helping us piece together, you know, who is, who is this girl, who is our daughter, and what are the different behaviors, and some of the different things that we're seeing. And, you know, as parents, it was so encouraging to hear the commonalities that we were seeing at home in the daycare setting that, you know, a daycare provider may, you know, they're going to tell you, oh, your kid's doing great. Or, hey, they had a hard day today, but it's like, okay, well, let's talk about that. What was hard? And so with these different evaluations that we went through, we were able to really kind of drill home on how is FASD showing up for our daughter? And, you know, for her, some of the big things were the sensory processing disorders, but really the, the cognitive delays. Um, there's a, the, the book, 
uh, trying differently rather than harder, which was a game changer for us. And one of the things it talks about in that book is this idea of that cognitive delay that the um, the 10 second kid in a one second world. And so this idea that the brain, the way that it's processing is just so much slower. So if I'm going to ask, ask my daughter to put her shoes on, um, it may take that full 10 seconds for that to fire in her brain to process and for her to get to that response. Well, in a world we live in, especially in a school setting, if you're getting instructions and commands to these young children, you're expecting a response in one to two seconds, right? Did you hear me? Did you comprehend this? But for her, um, you know, it could come across as disobedience or ignoring you, but it's just her brain just is slower to process these things. Um, the other thing um, that it talks about in that book is the idea of the Swiss cheese brain, right? Where you could spend an entire day um, you focused on one thing, teaching your kid, right? Whether that's one plus one equals two or whether that's, okay, every time we eat or have a snack when we're done, the plate goes into the sink. Uh, you can spend a whole day, a whole week um, teaching your kid that. And the next day, kid gets up from the table and it's like, Hey, where does your plate go? I don't know. You never told me. <laughs> and it's like, what do you mean? And it's not that they're necessarily lying. It's that the way their, their brain is, is functioning with recall. It, it's not functioning properly. And so really, you know, kind of that idea of, of, you know, the difference between can't and won't, and just understanding that there is, you know, fetal alcohol is a brain condition. It is something that we cannot see on the outside. It is something that is on the inside. And so, as a parent, we are in that unique role to study and observe the ways in which this is coming out and then begin to apply some different parenting techniques to be able to help our kids. And I think that's that's one of the most unique things that comes with parenting a child with FASD is that depending on how you grew up and kind of the setting you're coming from, you know, for me coming out of, you know, a relatively what I'll call traditional home with, with high structure and high discipline, you're flipping this thing on a dime. You're completely, you know, taking all of the parenting skills you may have picked up from your mom, your dad, different family members, and flipping it upside down. And they're sitting there questioning, you're going, you know, you're going to take that disrespect, or you're going to take that disobedience. You're like, well, yes, because there's actually a brain functioning thing that's going on here. You know, there's some things that we need to address first. You know, there's some connection that needs to come before the correction can come. And so, it, you know, it it is difficult on that end, but it also is refreshing because it's a journey. And there's always something new to learn. There's always, you know, different tips and tricks that are out there that are coming through. And, you know, even your podcast, you know, just listening through some of the interviews you were doing, just really helpful, practical stuff that we're not alone in this, that there's a lot of people who are beginning to see and realize just how much is needed, how much learning is needed on all fronts, not just parenting, but on all fronts to be able to help these kids thrive and, and really be able to achieve their greatest potential. Um, Kristen and I sat down uh, earlier this year with our daughter's um, uh, IEP team, you know, her social worker, her teacher, her principal, um, her special ed teacher. And, you know, we're in, a, we're in a suburban district of Buffalo. And I said, then I asked them, I said, you know, I'm curious, you know, how many children have you had come through this school with FASD? And the one teacher, uh, the, the kindergarten teacher who's been there for 35 years said, I've not had any that I've known about. And a social <laughs> worker mentioned one kid that she had when she was in an inner city school, but none of them. And what's so, re what's so uh, refreshing to us is that as we're learning stuff, we're able to bring them along. And they're, you know, I know this is not the case for every school district, but uh, they're really open to learning about these different things, seeing and it's and it's helping them in their classrooms, in their schools, in their guidance counselor offices, because they're seeing and realizing that there are more kids who maybe are impacted that just don't have the diagnoses because diagnoses for a kindergarten is so rare. Um, it really most most times you're not getting that until later on. And by that point in time, that kid has struggled so much. They're so far behind that you're really having to do all that you can to kind of bring them along us getting this on the front end was a game changer because we're able to put these things into her IEP, work with them before, you know, before she even goes into a classroom, be able to sit down with that teacher, walk them through what's been helpful. What are some things you can try and build that communication? And for her, that's going to help and stay with her all through her academic uh, career. So yeah, we've, we've had quite a bit of experience, but we're also ones who are always learning and always growing. 
Well, you're speaking my language because you certainly know your FASD stuff, um, which isn't always the case. Um, so I love the fact that that you're so well equipped and understanding it. And and you, you brought up the book, Trying Differently Rather Than Harder. That's always the go-to book that that I recommend as well. Um, so so that's wonderful. And, and I love how you marry kind of the, the whole connected parenting piece and that brain-based approach that we that we learn through through trying differently rather than harder, and you put that together because that that was really my experience too. I I understood the connected parenting stuff, read the connected child, got a lot of training with the with empower to connect to understand that and apply that. So then once we started seeing the FASD stuff, it fits together very well because you're looking at the history, like what's what's why is this behavior happening? Right. Not not let's just punish this behavior or correct this behavior to get it to change. But why is this behavior even here? And with FASD, we know it's the brain. Right. So I love the fact that you already you have that already down and you're practicing that and then bringing it into the school because, you know, we know we, we know from from I've had a lot of training through the folks that um, that book came through trying differently rather than harder through the folks at facets. Um, I'm a certified facilitator of the facets neurobehavioral model. And, you know, it's one in 20 school age children in the United States, right? So every classroom has at least one child prenatally exposed. And they're not necessarily this is not children in the child welfare population. It's significantly higher among that population. But every you know, every classroom across the country has at least one one child, one student who was prenatally exposed, most likely not diagnosed. So to be able to bring that education to the school is a game changer, especially for the next child that comes in, right? So I love the fact that you're doing that. Um, yeah, well, in addition to that, what other resources? Are there other resources that you've been able to tap into um, to help you with your parenting journey, whether it be the trauma stuff, the FASD stuff. Yeah. So the, um, anything by neuropsychiatrist Dan Siegel is really good, but there's one book that he has, uh, called the whole brain child where he gets yeah. into, I think it's 12 different parenting strategies really for healthy brain development. And, um, what I love about Dan Siegel is he takes kind of this, he takes the neuroscience, he takes all the brain chemistry stuff but he shares it in layman's terms, right? He's the one who speaks a lot about upstairs brain and downstairs brain. And he uses terminologies that for me, who, you know, I read books, I'm learning, but I don't, I am not smart in this area. I'm so grateful for guys like that and various people that he write with because they take some of these complex thoughts and they put it in, in language that I can understand. You know, Kristen, my wife, um, she works in adult mental health and she'll, she will pick up, you know, a book on polyvagal theory and it is the driest. I need a thesaurus. I need <laughs> cliff notes. I'm like, help me understand what the golden nuggets are here. And there's a lot of good stuff in the different books she reads. But um, Dan Siegel, for example, is just one person. Karen Purvis is the other. Just being able to write things and, and talk about the way that the brain functions, the way that kind of environmental factors impact us and the different systems that we have in our human body and be able to take that and make it in language that the typical foster adoptive or parent who just has a child who maybe has some brain things going on can understand. Um, the other thing is, you know, is a trust-based relational intervention. Um, so Kristen and I did that. Uh, we, we, we were trained in that, got certified in that, um, probably about three years ago, finished that up. And um, the way that we did it was, you know, four all day intensives where you sit through and you go through the the connecting, empowering and, and correcting principles and you practice and do different role playing activities. And you're able to share a little bit about what you've learned and what you applied from the last time you gathered. And that was something that we did before we had Sophia's FASD diagnosis and it was helpful. And I'm so glad that we did it because it's really a ton of different tools, tips, and strategies. But when we got the diagnosis, it's like, all right, now I know what we're dealing with. And now I know how I can apply these tools or use these tools in really effective ways. That's going to meet, it's going to meet our daughter's very specific needs. Um, you know, because it, it really is. I mean, trust-based relational intervention, it is, it is stuff that works. There is evidence behind this stuff. 
but not everything is going to work with every kid. And so being able to kind of pair the two together uh, really, really, really helped us. Um, yeah, then there's there's all kinds of podcasts and books that are out there. And, and like I said, really anything by Dan Siegel or Karen Purvis, I would highly recommend. Yeah, excellent, excellent resources. Uh, and I could speak with you all day long about this, but let's pivot a little bit because I want to get to what you're doing now with Every Child uh, because you're now the executive director. Uh, Every Child is a faith-based nonprofit based out there in the Buffalo area. So share with us about the mission of Every Child. So the mission of Every Child is to reach every child in need within our reach with repeated opportunities to hear and see the gospel. And so for us as an organization, uh, we're a ministry that really believes that whatever family crisis is going on, God has equipped the church to be uh, the people that respond and step into those crises. And so as a ministry, as a nonprofit, we're a 501c3, um, we operate on three tiers. Um, the first tier is on the prevention side of things. And so we share that the common ground here, Sandra, with Care Portal. And so we really believe um, that through Care Portal, the church can be the place where burdens are bared in the community, that when there is a, a mom or a dad or a family that's in need and is at risk of having their family be broken apart by the foster care system for the safety of the kid, and there's tangible needs that are involved, that the church is equipped. Uh, to be able to meet those needs. And so we are an implementing partner of Care Portal out in the eight counties of Western New York. And uh, we've only got two counties that are up and fully functioning in Niagara and Chautauqua right now. This year, we're getting Erie County up and then uh, putting our focus more towards uh, Cattaraugus County. But uh, we, we, we partner with churches uh, we partner with them when we partner for them. And so we partner with them and being able to train their folks to be able to respond to these needs, to be able to walk in uh, to these situations and respond with dignity and compassion and really be that relational connection that a family would need that's outside of the department, right? Because caseworkers, CPS workers, DSS, they're, they're there to help the family, but they're also part of the system that could rip them apart. And so it's hard sometimes for families to really be able to build trust and to be able to build a support system based on what DSS and CPS is doing. And so we come in with CarePort. I know you've talked about it, so I won't go into too much depth. You can go back last week, I believe it was, or uh, another week this month when Steve was on and he shares all about it. Amazing tool uh, that really allows the church and the state to work together to meeting these needs. And so we do a lot uh, with being able to train agency workers on how to submit those needs, being able to train churches to be able to meet those needs. Uh, but then the other chairs we also work on are, you know, once a child is in care, that support for kingship, foster, and adoptive families. So we do a lot of trainings. We do trauma-informed trainings. We actually were really excited. We just got um, uh, uh, one of our, our key team members um, into the practitioner training for TBRI. So she's going to be going out to Chicago this October so that we can get back to doing that. We'd had some folks who previously helped us with that, but she's going to do that. My wife is uh, going to be doing it in December. She's going to become a practitioner out in San Antonio. So we're so excited to be able to offer TBRI on an ongoing basis. Uh, we also do other trainings and, and just support programs for parents. We got different support groups that meet uh, for parents to be able to make connections with one another. Uh, we do special events as well, you know, whether that's a sensory friendly event, whether that's, you know, renting out an entire, you know, trampoline park so that, uh, you know, a family can, families can all come together and not worry about the behaviors your kids are displaying because all the kids are displaying those behaviors. <laughs> Um, we, we got all kinds of events we put on, really just anything we can do to mobilize the church, to come around and support families who are caring for these, these kids who are in care. And then that third tier, which is recruiting foster parents and uh, recruiting that wraparound support, you know, and I mean, the numbers are out there, the statistics are out there. The statistics are kind of interesting to look at because if you look at New York State's numbers, it looks like the foster care numbers are coming down, which in some ways they are, but the, the kinship care numbers are also going up. And so at the end of the day, there's an increasing number of children who are entering into care each and every day. You know, in New York State alone, you're talking 20,000 plus uh, children who are in care over the course of a year. And so, you know, when you look at the number of foster families that are there to welcome these kids in, you know, I know in the counties where we're working in, 
it's not even close. You know, a lot of these kids end up going into residential programs, which may or may not care for them well. Um, a lot of these kids age out. You know, my heart breaks for these kids who are 17, getting ready to age out and it's, they've got nowhere to go. And so we really do a lot trying to work with churches to get them to, you know, work with us to network and recruit new foster parents who see and understand the reunification aspect of what foster care is. Um, and also adoptive parents as well, you know, always, always, I mean, how many hundreds of kids and, you know, you're in New York state as well are in the heart gallery are in. Um, these, you know, in these situations where they've been freed for adoption, but they don't have a forever family to call home. And so, you know, we, we do a lot of work on that side as well. And, uh, you know, it really is uh, a conglomeration of, of churches. Like I said earlier, we're, our goal is to be fully active in all eight counties. Um, we're currently active in, in three, uh, but it's growing. And, um, you know, it really is for me personally. I just joined the team here back in February. Uh, of this past year, but it's it's something that I've been a part of for for many many years. Connected with Steve Poisson, who I know you had earlier on the podcast. Uh, it's just great to see how receptive the churches, different organizations, and community supporters to wanting to be active and really in helping vulnerable kids in the community. There's so many different organizations that are doing great work, um, and it's great to see whether it's through Care Portal or through our events or through recruitment, people coming together to work together to really you know, to make a significant difference in the lives of those kids who are living right here in our neighborhoods and in communities. Wow. I love all that you guys are doing out there. Do you have um, online support? Like I know you're having, you do support groups and trainings and whatnot. Is any of that available online or is that all in person? Yeah. So right now, the majority of our stuff is in person, but we do, we will be offering kind of as we're planning now for the fall and then into next year, uh, some different online aspects of some of the resources that we offer, some of the support groups that we offer, um, some of the different trainings that we offer will be done digitally as well. Uh, but all of any of our resources or events, you can find all that stuff at www.every-child.com. You got to have the dash in there, but every-child.com. We also have, you know, you can follow us on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Uh, we post our information uh, there as well. And, um, you know, we're also looking to, you know, partner with different folks. So, you know, different, bring in different trainers, different people to, you know, work with, whether that's, uh, you know, schools, you know, we're do hope for the journey, you know, for instance, um, which I know you guys had been a big part of your journey and you guys have worked with them. Uh, it's something that we've offered as well, both digitally and in person. So um, there's a lot of different options and opportunities and you can find all of that stuff right up there on our website. Wonderful. And we'll put a link to your website in the show notes, but it's every-child.org. Dot com. Dot com. Dot com. We'll make sure we get it right and get it in the show notes. Um, so as you know, all of our episodes this month are focusing on the dads. Uh, so I love, would love for you to take a moment to really offer some words of encouragement, some advice to any of our foster or adoptive dads that are listening. Absolutely. So, you know, foster dads, we we truly have one of the toughest jobs on the planet. You know, because we are we are born and designed to be those protectors and those providers for our family. And we really are given a unique opportunity, you know, specifically for foster dads to step into the, the life of a child for a season, uh, but not to play a substitute role, uh, but a substantial role, right? Our, our foster children, our bio kids, um, they really need to see from us that calm in the midst of the storm. Uh, they need to hear that affirmation. Um, they really, they look to us for encouragement and direction. And, and as, a, as a foster dad, you know, at times we feel like we got to give out something that we may not even have, right? That I've got to, I've got to show this kid that it's going to be okay. And when I don't know that it's going to be okay, or that, you know, this, that, that I'm going to love and affirm this child, maybe even though on the inside, I'm struggling to bond and connect and, and how can we do it? And, you know, we're trying to be the protector, trying to be that provider, trying to be everything for these kids and for our bio kids. But the reality of it is, is we can't be everything and we're not called to be. As a matter of fact, you cannot, as a foster dad, you can't rescue your child. You cannot sustain them. You cannot redeem their story. But they do have a redeemer in their story, and that's God. Mm -hmm. He's the one who is rescuing them. He's the one who's going to sustain them um, while, while they're with you and after they leave. 
Um, they, uh, he is the one who is going to, uh, redeem their story in whatever way he sees fit, even if it doesn't make sense to you, even if it seems like things are getting worse. And so, you know, one of the things that I just really want to encourage the dads with is this, is that as you're walking through and trying to be the provider, trying to be that protector, um, know this is that when you walk alongside these children who are in foster care, this is really a gift to you as well, because it's a gift of where you can, you can try to rely on yourself. You can try to take the weight of your family on your shoulders, but really the gift is in knowing and needing God more deeply. Mm. Um, Because that's, that's the reward of our, uh, the pricely reward of the costly. Yes. Right. And I say this as somebody who just put a child that I loved as my own son into the arms of a person of a man that I had never met before. Uh, until the day I had to hand him off, is that I know that God's got him. And I have Mm. to trust and rely on God more deeply that he's got him. And in those moments with my daughter, where she's struggling through these mental health things that I don't understand, because I maybe didn't have, I don't have them or didn't experience that, that even in this moment where I feel like I'm doing all that I can, and it's still not enough, that God is the one who's holding us both up, and he's going to carry us both through. And so the thing that I can do best as a dad is get close to my dad and not my biological dad, my heavenly father, mm. you know, get to know him more deeply, you know, prioritize your relationship with him because as you get closer to the father, he's going to use you and he's going to work through you and he's going to minister out of you in ways that you won't realize in the moment when you look back, you can see, Oh my goodness. Yeah, God was rescuing my my foster son, my foster daughter. God was sustaining them. God was redeeming them. But God was also doing the same for me. He was mm-hmm. rescuing me. He was sustaining me. He was redeeming me. So, dads, take a you know take heart, take a deep breath. It's not all on you. Um, but but as as you walk and, and and carry your foster kids and their trauma. And you carry the court and the uncertainty of court situations and legal battles. You carry the rest of your family through that. You carry your spouse through that. God's carrying you. He's got you. He's not going to let you stumble. Doesn't mean you're not going to have pain. Doesn't mean it's not going to be a challenge, but he is with you in it. He's going to carry you through it. And that's what we see all throughout scripture, right? We see that the God of scripture is a God who is constantly carrying his people through the valley of the shadow of darkness and through on to the other side, and he'll do the same for you, no matter what that situation may look like. So that's my encouragement to dads. That's my encouragement as a foster dad. That's my encouragement to you. It's an encouragement that I give back to myself and remind myself of every day as we're looking to walk through uh, this journey and really just caring for these kids at their most critical uh, point of need. Well, I thank you, John, because powerful encouragement that you just offered our foster and adoptive dads, but also moms, because I know that encouraged me as well. So um, I'm going to be sharing that. And and I, I know our support group folks listen to this podcast, but I'm also going to encourage them by sharing that message tonight when we meet, because what a powerful message of encouragement. Thank you so much. And you know what? Thank you for all that you're doing with your family and ministering. I know you've got three little foster children with you right now. There's not much sleep going on at your house, but you are, <laughs> you know, you're in the trenches and you're doing it and you're caring for them. Um, and all that you're doing through uh, every child. Thank you for all you're doing. And and thank you also for being on the show today and sharing your story. Absolutely. And yes, thank you again, Sandra, for not only opportunity to share today, but for all that you and, and your organization have committed to do and continue to do, not just for your direct area, but for the region and for honestly, our country. You know, I know you're involved uh, national, a lot of different things, and you you are such an asset uh, to the foster and adoptive world. And so continue in this podcast, continue in the work that you're doing, because uh, we're, we're coming behind you. We're watching and we get to stand on your shoulders one day. And uh, and we, we're just so grateful um, for the work that you're doing and have done. And uh, for the many parents who you every single day are tangibly supporting and and being a part of that little uh, blessing by by putting together these recordings, the resources that you do, the trainings you do. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. And again, thank you for being on the show. Absolutely. And thank you for listening to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey. I hope you were inspired by John's story today. I know I was. um, Incredible inspiration, such words of wisdom 
you know, for not just our dads, but our moms too, or any of us, right? That, you know, we need to know God and and grow deeper with the Lord, get to know our dad, right? Um, And that's what's going to help us on this journey as foster and adoptive parents. Love it. Um, Again, hope you enjoyed this conversation. We will include in the show notes a link to Every Child um, so that you can check out their website and the amazing things that they're doing here in um, out in the western part of New York State. Uh, And be sure to tune in for another amazing episode next week. Make sure you are subscribing so you don't miss a single episode. Um, We want to continue to encourage and inspire you. Uh, We also like to equip you for the parenting journey. So again, if you want to learn more about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, FASD, how to apply the neurobehavioral model to accommodate your kiddos for success, you'll want to take advantage of the training I shared at the beginning of the show to learn more about the training that we offer, uh, to register, to find out what those resources are. um, Go to our website, justicefororphansny.org. And there is a link in the show notes to our website as well. Um, And if you're interested in booking an online or in-person workshop for your group, agency, extended family members, child's uh, school teachers, their IEP team, um, or even just for yourself, you know, maybe you just want a one-on-one, you want to have a conversation, you want to learn a little bit more, um, contact me through our website or you can reach out to me directly in my email, which is Sandra Flack at justicefororphansny.org. And remember, you can check out our Hope for the FASD Journey virtual support community. We are here to walk this parenting journey with you. Um, check out all of our resources on the website. And as always, make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss a show. Find us on social media. You can find and follow Justice for Orphans on Facebook and Instagram, as well as uh, me, Sandra Flack. I'm on both platforms as well. I would love to connect with you. I am so grateful that you spent your valuable time with me today. I am thrilled to have you along for the journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast, brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review and share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.